Hi, I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech-language pathologist, and welcome to my podcast, number 449, Clinical Education and Supervision, Following ASHA's Guidelines for Best Practice, brought to you by my website, Teach Me to Talk, where we're the largest online provider of ASHA-approved continuing education courses for early intervention professionals. So this show today is exclusively for speech-language pathologists. I doubt if you're watching, if you are anything other than an SLP. But before we get started with all that, if you have not already subscribed to our YouTube channel, I would invite you to do that now. We are always so grateful for your support. So how many of you were caught off guard when you looked at your latest requirements for your C's and you saw that you had to have two hours in supervision? Or maybe you're just getting ready to take a student now and you realize you can't, even if you've supervised students for years and years, now you can't do it unless you prove that you've had a two ever course in supervision. So, so many of you have emailed me to ask if we had a course to satisfy this requirement, and I'm so happy to say now we do. But even beyond all that, this course is a good idea, not only because it's required, but because it's always a good idea to take a look at what our national credentialing organization says we should be doing or recommends what how we should be practicing every day that will follow and fit into best practice. So for this course on supervision, we're going straight to the source. <laughs> Most of the things that I'll be sharing with you today are directly from ASHA's practice portal. I'll be presenting two good tools that I found when I was fulfilling my own supervision requirement. One is for us to use when we're supervising students, whether that be grad students or um, new CFs, something to use in our practice with them. And then another tool that I'll just share briefly at the end that really kind of recaps all that we talk about, and it's a great professional growth tool in the area of supervision. All right, so how can we find out ASHA's recommendation for anything. It is always listed in ASHA's practice portal. And today, again, we'll be looking at clinical education and supervision. So the practice portal is one of our best tools and one of the best benefits for being ASHA members. You can look up any diagnosis and get what... the most current EBP guidelines are. And now they've also added lots of professional issues too, like working with assistants. We're not going to talk about that today. We're really just going to talk about supervising students and new uh, CFs or clinical fellows, but also things like bilingual service delivery and just communication, documentation, those kinds of things. So this is our primary reference today. And there's a handout for today's course too, so you can follow along. It will not be word for word with the presentation that we'll be doing, but enough to get you started. And again, all that I'm including here today, you can really find referenced easily in the practice portal. Now, you'll get that handout when you purchase the CE credit for today's course. If you've just stumbled upon this course on YouTube, you can get the link below for going to our website to enroll in that course. And if you are listening uh, on your podcast app, you can get information about this show at my website at teachmetotalk.com and just look for show 449. All right, so let's begin by discussing the benefits of supervising. And again, this is applicable no matter who we're supervising. It could be students, clinical fellows, or even other SLPs that we supervise within our own organizations. So what's the first benefit? Well, first of all, it supports professional practice and reflection. So let's talk about the practice part. The practice part means that it sharpens our own clinical skills because someone else will be watching (laughs) 
<laughs> what we do. And someone else that, again, parents are always with us, or maybe maybe we think about it in terms of our other team members, teachers, but when we have a student or a new clinical fellow, we are sharp <laughs> because we want to be sure that we ourselves are reflecting was the most appropriate. And again, we're always modeling that uh, professional behavior. The next piece of that is reflection. So what does that mean? That means analyzing what we're doing. So analyzing our own clinical uh, problem-solving abilities, analyzing our therapy techniques, analyzing the kinds of things that we share with parents. So a great, great benefit in supervising other professionals or other students or students is that we, again, support uh, all of that within our, our own practices. The second benefit is that it supports continuing professional development. And so this is where we learn something new, not always just kind of modeling what we know for that new clinician or student, but learning what they have to offer. Maybe they're going to share a new piece of research that they've discovered or something they read even on Instagram. (laughs) Lots of times it is something brand new. Sometimes it's just a tweak of something maybe that we've done for years and years or maybe even something that we've just forgotten about and we see them do it or they ask a question or in some way lead us to think about that. So that's always a good thing. The third benefit is that it improves well-being. Sometimes when we think about taking on a student or supervisory responsibilities, we think that's just one more thing. Oh, this is just another thing that I have to do. But honestly, research says that we have less burnout when we supervise other uh, other people. And sometimes, again, we might be hesitant to do that. But in the end, it always uh, ends up being a more positive experience, even for us, even with taking on that extra work responsibility than it would otherwise. Uh, Most of us really enjoy teaching. That's why we are speech language pathologists in the first place. So this, again, gives us another avenue to do that. The fourth benefit is that it improves our work environment and culture. We like going to work more. There's another reason to get up in the morning and get us going. And again, because of that Uh, We're all kind of rising to the occasion of someone else watching with us, watching us and being with us and learning from us. Again, it does improve uh, our work day. And lastly, and the most important, we get better patient outcomes. Now, why is that? I think it's because two heads are better than one. (laughs) And also for all the other reasons that we've already talked about. We're sharper when someone else is is, uh, with us. When we hear someone else bring another idea to the table, it makes us think even more. So in the end, that results in better uh, patient care and patient outcomes uh, for the clients and families that we serve. All right, the practice portal page lists the supervisory roles that we have as speech-language pathologists. And again, this is what the best guidelines refer to. And I've already sort of reviewed it, but let's let's talk about it again. These guidelines uh, are relevant for us when we are supervising graduate students in speech-language pathology programs. And that would be whether we're in the university setting or a more clinical setting or in off-site settings. Uh, it, it also applies to mentoring and supervising SLP clinical fellows. So that's what happens. You'll all remember that first nine months that we are out of school in that period where we are closely supervised by another professional. It also refers to professionals transitioning to a new area of practice. I get emails almost every day at Teach Me to Talk which say, you know, I came in from an elementary school practice. I'd only worked with elementary school 
middle-aged children and now I'm transitioning to early intervention, it is a totally different job. And so we all need guidelines as we switch from population to population within our careers. And certainly uh, as well to the supervision of support personnel like techs and assistants. So let's start with some definitions. What does it mean to supervise? Well, supervision can be broadly defined as overseeing and directing the work of others. However, (laughs) there's a lot more that we do as SLP clinical educators. We teach specific skills. We clarify the concepts that students have learned in a classroom setting, and now they seem to forget (laughs) as they transition to a clinical setting. And sometimes we do that too, right? We don't always connect our theory with our everyday practice. And that's one of the things that we really ought to be thinking about uh, as we supervise students and new CFs is to help them really connect all that they've spent six years learning uh, in their in their uh, post high school education. So we have to really help them again make that relevant, and make that meaningful. We assist with critical thinking, so we help them develop those skills. And we're going to talk about some tools that I can share with you and some other strategies. We'll be talking about that later. We, of course, conduct their performance evaluations. We mentor, we advise, and, of course, we model professional behavior. All right, so instead of supervision or clinical supervisor, the preferred term is now clinical educator or CF mentor. And this really is a more accurate reflection of what we really do. Clinical supervisors often influence an SLP's career more than a, 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 even a professor, even a beloved professor who might have taught class after class. But again, we are helping them connect the dots and getting transitioning from student to independent practicing clinician. Just because you're a great SLP does not mean that you will be a good supervisor. That is such a flawed assumption, and that's a direct quote from Ash's Practice Portal page, and I liked that. Effective supervision actually requires a whole different set of knowledge and skills, and so that's what we're going to be walking through today. We have to do more than that administrative piece to be an effective clinical educator. Asha says, and this is a direct quote, it's our duty to focus on the unique aspects of knowledge and specialized skills for the supervisory process, and this should not just be limited to the regulatory aspects, pardon me, that we fulfill in our role as uh, clinical educators. So it's a lot more than observation time and keeping track of those clock hours. I really like the way that Carol Philander, uh, who's a PhD, that one of the presentations that I took to satisfy my own supervision requirement, this is how she characterized our three roles as supervisors. And I, I really liked it. And I really think this is how we can encapsulate what we do as clinical educators out in the field. One, our first role is educative. So what does that mean? It means that we are offering information. So we're still teaching about the specific population that we're serving. We're teaching about the setting that we're in. And again, those of us who are in early intervention, because most or lots of the time, our primary setting is in a family's home. And that can be completely intimidating to a young CF or a grad student who have not had the life experiences that we've had. And so they do feel that they need some guidance even getting through, you know, how does it look to go into a family's home? How how do we act? You know, it's much different than a clinical setting. So again, that's so important that we educate and that we help uh, students get through those things, not just with the emotional support, which is the second role that we're going to talk about in a minute, but so that we're really sharing the nuts and bolts of that. Um, our, so uh, intervention strategies, we're certainly talking about that and sharing those 
just our, our clinical skills in that educative role, and then uh, theoretical orientation. So what is your philosophy? What what are your what what is the underlying theory driving what you do? Do you really believe in a developmental approach? You know, here's why or here's not. Do you do how how do we look at facilitating language development? So those are the things that we should really be helping our students and our new CFs really uh, navigate through. The second role here is supportive, and that's what I alluded to back in education. So this is where we off, offer the emotional support to help them make it through. We can remember our own times as grad students or as new clinical fellows when we were scared and we were intimidated and we were not sure that we knew what we were doing. <laughs> We've got to really keep that in mind. So even when a student is floundering and you think, you know, oh, how did she, how did she get here? How does she think this is okay? You know, we've still got to remember again to be empathetic and remember what it was like for us in that role. Certainly there are other things that we manage, other personal factors or issues that impact client treatment and management of those. How, what, how do we recover from a bad session? What do we do when we feel like we have, have failed? Whether that's, again, with an intervention strategy or in the support that we offer a parent. And so as a supervisor, in those first few months of a clinical fellow's time, once they've received their master's degree and they're practicing, that is such an unsettling time for them. You, they, and again, on one hand, they, they're ready to go. They think they know everything, but certainly it's so different when we start to practice and so we have to help them navigate through that and it's more more than the educative role we've got to again be there as their mentors and offer that support that they need just as people and the last facet of that is administrative and unfortunately that's what so many of us focus on when we are thinking about our grad students or our clinical fellows is making sure that we've crossed all the t's and dotted the i's and gotten all the documentation in line and that is important but our other roles beyond that are probably even a little bit more important. Now, one unspoken idea in supervision is that there's no attention to the competence of the supervisor. Sometimes it's just who is who will take a student. And I know in some uh, settings or organizations, you know, you, you kind of have the, the choice whether you're going to take a student or not. And certainly those of us who are in private practice have that choice. But lots of times in organizations, it's just this person supervises because it's what they've always done, regardless, again, if that's going to be a super positive uh, experience or a real growth experience for that new clinician or new grad student. And so research has addressed this, and there's some concerns that were raised about inadequate and even harmful supervision. And that's what pushed ASHA forward several years ago to really start to develop specific resources and specific courses and specific requirements so that we do pursue clinical education and supervision as a separate unique area where we uh, need to continue our professional education. So let's start by looking at some specific regulations for supervision, which is a real brief regulation review. We'll look at the ASHA standards for supervising. So it's standard 5E, if you want to look that up. But supervision of students has to be provided by a clinical educator who currently holds their C's or their ASHA certification. Uh, and then after that, the supervisor has 
uh, receive their C's, they have to have a minimum of nine months of full-time clinical experience and that two-hour required additional training and supervision that we've already talked about. Now, the um, amount of direct supervision has to be commiserate for uh, the student and where they are in their continuing of education, but it's no less for a student, a grad student, than 25% of the student's total contact with each client or patient. And it has to take uh, place periodically throughout the practicum. You can't just front load it all and then just turn them loose. And I've seen practices where that happened. You, you just cannot do that. <laughs> That's not fair to the student or uh, to the patients and uh, or clients and families that we serve, our little friends. And so we have to be super, super careful about that. So supervision has to be sufficient enough to ensure the welfare of the individual receiving services. And again, the more technical, uh, whatever it is that you're doing with that family or that, that child, certainly our supervision practices will also reflect that complexity. So CF mentor qualification almost the same as the student we have to have our C's have to be current through the entire CF experience so you can't just drop out of your ASHA <laughs> participation halfway through uh, the CF mentor and clinical fellow cannot be related in any way and then uh, again they have to have that nine months of full-time experience or the part-time equivalent after they've received their C's or and they have to have completed that two hours of professional development beyond that so how much observation and supervision is required during the CF experience. Now, we said for students, we have to supervise no less than 25% of total patient contact hours. For a CF, it's a little different. We divide that nine-month period into three-month sections. We have to have 18 uh, uh, on-site or eyes-on observations uh, during that time with six per uh, three-month period there and we also have to have at least 18 other monitoring activities and that might be documentation review, attending team meetings, any other thing that's not direct uh, clinical care. And so we have to be sure that we're using these observations to assess their performance because that's our job. At the end of that CF experience, we have to have that person ready for independent practice and certainly we know all the documentation guidelines that we have to complete during that. Let me say one other uh, uh, point about this, our state licensure laws might differ from ASHA and we can never jeopardize a CF's time during uh, that mentorship uh, if our licensure isn't adequate or theirs. And so we have to really be sure that we are understanding what the licensure laws are in the state that we are practicing in. If by chance you're supervising someone that's in a different state from you, you know, I lived in Kentucky for years and in Louisville, we lived right there on the Indiana line. So I practiced in both Southern Indiana and Kentucky, and there were some differences, and certainly there can be differences with supervision too. When you practice in two states like that, you you know those things, but it's just a good reminder uh, for me to share here on the show. All right, so can CF mentors or supervisors accept payment for the supervision that they provide? And sometimes we, and you know, you can always tell a private practitioner because we're looking at the bottom line, aren't we? <laughs> and so we cannot accept compensation for supervision or mentor mentorship or I should say should not, it's not an ironclad rule, but it is just a, it's just a given that we would not accept any uh, reimbursement for that beyond reasonable costs. So things like uh, a mileage reimbursement or gas or what, whatever you work out. But again, it has to be just tied to reasonable expenses. If reimbursement is anticipated, you need to be super clear about that in the beginning and have that 
uh, settled through a more formal, probably agreement that you're going to make so that all of that is outlined and so that if you are questioned in the future, you will have documentation of, of what you agreed to and what uh, went down with that. All right. So when we supervise, we all know that our starting point is what? It's the code of ethics. And so ASHES address supervision within the code. There are four big principles in the code of ethics. I've uh, just a couple months ago did a show about the code of ethics with ASHES guidelines there. So if you still need an ethics requirement for this year or for next time that you're uh, a certificate maintenance hours are due. I hope that you'll check that out. But we read through that in- entire code of ethics there and looked at those big four principles and all the rules that are listed under each principle. And within each of those principles, there are some real specific things that relate to supervision. So let's just address that. So the first principle of ethics is that individuals should honor their responsibility to hold paramount the welfare of persons they serve professionally or who are participants in our research studies. So what does that really uh, mean for us when we are supervising? It means that we're going to provide all of our services and scientific activities competently. So does that mean we can just let a student go with just barely any guidance from us? Absolutely not. It's part of our responsibility to make sure that even when we're training, that we always keep that patient or that client's welfare in mind above everything else. And it always helps to keep us on our toes with knowing that at the end of a CF's experience, they have to be totally independent and and part of our responsibility is to get them competent enough to do that. So another rule under there is that we should not represent misrepresent the credentials of anyone that we're supervising. And so when we are working with a student or working with a new clinician who's in their clinical fellowship year, we always have to share that with uh our little friends' families. Another rule here that applies under principle of ethics one is that any time, well, let me just read it. Individuals whose professional practice is adversely affected by substance abuse, addiction, or another health-related condition that results in their impairment, we have to seek professional assistance. And so when we're mentoring a student or mentoring a new CF that we think may be struggling in this area, part of the code of ethics is to help them get that treatment and make sure that we are protecting them and protecting the families that we serve. Principle of ethics two has to deal with uh, the responsibility to achieve and maintain the highest level of professional competence and performance. And we talked about that a little bit, but here, this is how our profession relates to us. In the first principle of ethics, we looked at how we relate to other people or our, uh, really, they're our clients or our caseloads. Here we're talking about us, just our own professional development. So one of the things that we have to make sure that we are doing as uh, professionals, as practicing speech-language pathologists, is engaging in lifelong learning that supports our own continuing education. And so when we see that a student needs some additional uh, education, some some additional foundation, not just beyond the here's here are the intervention strategies and what we do, but maybe sometimes we find a student or even work with a CF who has a real gap in their clinical knowledge, especially as it applies to early intervention. And so many programs, training programs now are including early intervention in specific classes for that. But particularly if maybe um, a professional that we talked about before is switching populations and they're coming back to or coming to early intervention for the first time in their careers and we're supervising them, we need to make sure that we are providing that foundational support so they understand 
uh, the population that they're working with. And so there's so many new uh, resources for that, and we want to be sure that we're sharing that. All right, another rule under this principle is Rule E, and it's it's a really specific one for supervision. We can never permit anyone that we're supervising to participate in activities that exceed the staff member's certification status, competence, education, training, or experience. And so this kind of speaks to, to assistance. We would never let an SLP assistant or allow them to do lots of assessment and evaluation or any, actually, where that's a billable activity because that's beyond their their status their education uh, status there and so we or their certification status and so we have to keep that in mind with students too and we know that students are preparing to be clinicians so they can certainly do assessments and evaluations and those kinds of things but we can't put them in a position that again jeopardizes themselves or the family that we're seeing or us our own uh, professional competence and uh, reputation so principle of ethics three is that we honor our responsibility to the public even with any unmet, uh, any kind of unmet need that they would have there. And so, again, a lot of this really uh, comes down to teaching our students and teaching our CFs to how to avoid conflicts of interest. And so the best thing we can do in that situation is just to model professional uh, behavior at all times and really model that ethical guidance where we talk through some of these situations and and we say, you know, this could be a potential conflict of interest and here's why, and so that we give real life experience to that. And then the last principle of ethics, ethics four, this deals with how we as professionals uphold the dignity and autonomy of our profession and how we maintain professional relationships with colleagues in other related fields and how we accept our profession's self-imposed standards. And so part of this is making sure that we don't have any discriminatory practices uh, you know, within, within our organizations or things that we're responsible for. We're not going to engage in any kind of, uh, again, power, uh, that influence of power, because we hold all the power in this position where we're the person who gives them the grade and signs off and really kind of hold their futures in our hands. And so we have to be sure that we are not being abusive with any of that. We also have to be sure that we're complying with all local, state, and federal laws and regulations and are teaching our students and our CFs to do that as well. All right, so let's move on and talk about the goals of clinical education. So effective supervision ensures that new students and clinicians are well prepared and that the individuals that we serve are going to receive competent and quality services. So that's our overall goal here. So let's look at the real specific knowledge and skills that ASHES committee says that we as supervisors, as clinical educators, that we should possess. Now this is not on your handout. A lot of it's just kind of common sense, but I want to run through these so that you can sort of check off in your own mind mentally how you're doing with these things. And I'll share a tool that will help you do this better for yourselves at the end of this course. So our first one here, it, and this is called, if you're looking at the practice portal and kind of following along, is the overarching knowledge and skills. So these are the standards for supervisors. All right, so here we go. Knowledge of clinical education and the supervisory process, including teaching techniques, adult learning styles, and collaborative models of supervision. So we're going to cover some of those models of supervision today. 
But again, that's what we really know that we're teaching is that clinical education piece. What do we do when? How do we treat this kind of kid? What this disorder looks like this. Those kinds of very basic, that educative role that we talked about. The next one is uh, that supervisors should possess skill in relationship development, including the creation of an environment that fosters learning. And I'm sure you can think back to your own experiences when you were a grad student or a new CF. How, how positive were your uh, relationships? with your own supervisors. I'm sure that you have horror stories and I may share a couple of mine. We'll see how we go, how it goes with the rest of this course. But we all have those or maybe we hear about those and lots of times those are relationship breakdowns. Sometimes there are communication issues. And so sometimes it's not even really anything other than just the two people who can't get along. And so we need to be sure that we are uh, making sure that we do our parts with that. The third one is ability to communicate. And that is so funny for us as communication specialist, sometimes we're not clear enough. We don't have concrete expectations. Uh, we're not, again, communicating exactly what we uh, our expectations are in a situation with a student or with a CF. And so, again, as communication professionals, that really should not be one of the problems that we experience. So, again, uh, we have to define expectations, and we do have to be willing to engage in those difficult conversations. And we have to really monitor and uh, monitor ourselves during those things and then really mend to our students because they too will have to have those kinds of conversations in the future and be on the other side of that. And so we certainly uh, need to be cognizant of that. All right, the next one is ability to collaboratively establish and implement goals, give objective feedback, and adjust the clinical education style when necessary. We all know that, again, we have different temperaments. We have different personalities. We've all, we all come into new relationships and new even professional uh, relationships with all of our baggage from the past. And sometimes that really affects how we are acting here and behaving, even in a professional uh, setting and environment. And so we have to be aware of that and adjust our clinical styles so that we can uh, just provide the best uh, supervision experience possible for the students that we take. Gone. The next one is ability to analyze and evaluate the student clinician's performance. And so that includes gathering data, identifying areas for improvement, assisting with self-reflections, and I'm going to give you a great tool to do that today, and then determining if their goals are being achieved. The next one is skill in modeling and nurturing clinical decision-making. And so we have to really talk out loud <laughs> for that period of time when we have a student with us so that we're always explaining, even more so than we do with parents. You know, I feel like we and early intervention are at a little bit uh, of an advantage when we take a student on because most of us are used to doing that with parents and really talking with parents about why we're doing what we're doing and we're saying this is how you do it so we're doing a lot of clinical educating even with parents but again with a with a student or a CF we, we take that up a notch so that we're using the professional terminology so that we're referring to research and we're talking about the benefits of treatment A versus treatment B and why we're choosing the strategies and choosing the interventions that we're choosing uh, for our clients. And when we're doing that, we're we're using information to support clinical decisions and solve problems. And then we're also uh, talking about those ethical dilemmas that come up. And we're going to problem solve and walk through one of those when I share that uh, reflection tool that we're going to talk about later. All right. We also need to have skill in fostering professional growth and development. So again, looking at what, that, uh, what we need to do with supervisors to be able to provide that great experience for the students or the CFs that we're supervising. 
Skill in making performance decisions, including the ability to create and implement plans for improvement and to assess the student's response to these plans. So when we have a student that's really, really struggling and we say this is an area where you're going to need some help and this is our plan, you know, you help a student come up with that and that you help them buy into that and you help them, again, respond to that so that we can have them be competent uh, by the time that they leave our uh, practicum. Uh, sites. All right. An ability to adhere to the principles of evidence-based practice and conveying research information to students. And again, this is just teaching a student. This is why we do the things that we're doing. These last two that I'm going to talk about are really specific to student training. And again, ability to connect academic knowledge and clinical education or application. So again, can they can they connect what they learned in the classroom with what they're really doing with you in that clinical setting? And as supervisors, we need the ability to sequence the student's knowledge and skill development. So we know at the beginning of the semester, we start really looking at, you know, what are their gaps? What can they do well? And what can I really support them to continue to grow in this area? And what are these areas of weakness that I need, that I can identify within the student so that I can help her or him uh, move on to be, again, really, really competent by the time we're finished. All right, so these are the recommendations that ASHA says for what a prepared new clinician should be able to do to offer quality services. And so this is really important. And again, we're keeping kind of our eye on the ball here so that if we're working with a student or working with a CF that we feel like is falling short, this kind of list may help us identify specifically what those things are. So by the end of the last semester of grad school, we will want students to acquire a fundamental knowledge about normal and disordered communication. And again, this is important for us as practicing clinicians because a lot of times we spend all our time with delayed and disordered kids and we don't even really think about, uh, we do think about normal, normal and typical development in the sense that we're constantly always kind of using that as our bar and comparing, but at the same time, we don't always share information about normal language acquisition. We think, oh, maybe that's a classroom activity. She had that back as an undergrad. But we need to be connecting that all the time. We want them always to uh, keep their, I like to say, keep your fingers on the pulse of normal. And so we always want to uh, help our students and help our new clinicians be uh, aware that they're doing that too. We help them develop critical thinking and clinical decision-making skills, help them acquire an understanding of clinical practices and methodology and the ability to implement those, that help them develop the ability to analyze research and apply that evidence to clinical practice. So that should be something we're doing all the time, pulling research and talking about that with clinicians and saying, hey, you know, the reason that we're doing this, there's a new study about that that really supports, you know, maybe you're saying supports what I've been doing for 20 years here, but you're always really tying that to evidence-based practice. And you're sure about that. And you're really deliberate about that when you're uh, teaching your students or teaching your new clinicians. Uh, the next one is to become competent in using any equipment and technology necessary for diagnosing and treating communication disorders. So do they know how to use the audiometer to screen hearing? <laughs> Don't let that be a foreign thing to them when they get, you know, uh, to independent practice. And so even things that we don't do very often, you know, learning test protocols, learning how to give, you know, so many different standard assessments, all the standard assessments that you typically give. We need to make sure that we are helping our students and helping our new clinicians and make sure that they're competent with that. 
uh, become competent in charting and monitoring patient records, so the documentation piece. And again, that's different in early intervention and maybe even different in your state according to your state guidelines versus what a student might have done in grad school. And certainly develop professional communication skills, both verbal and written. Develop professional behaviors, including the ability to work with individuals and their families. And certainly skills necessary to function on teams. Lots of times we get students and they've had very little contact with uh, our colleagues in physical therapy or OT or ABA. And so we have to help our students, again, learn how to navigate those relationships. All right. So we have to strive for what Asha calls competency-based education. Lots more than a record of clinical hours. Really making sure that we focus on the knowledge and the skills that our new grads and our new clinicians need to be able to practice independently. All right, there are several models for providing supervision as recommended by uh, the ad hoc committee who prepared ASHA's guidelines and recommendations. And so we're gonna uh, slow down now through the rest of this presentation, <laughs> not at the speed that we've been going, but really talk through some of these things so that you have some options. And so that you can really, if you have supervised students in the past, maybe you've done it for decades now, so that you are really comparing yourself to what these theoretical models say are our best practice. And by the time that we're finished, I want to just challenge you as a supervisor, and this is on page two of your handout, to look at these three supervision models and really by the end of this say, well, this, this is the one that I most am like now. Or maybe you would even say, you know, I haven't done that like I should have done it. This is, this is the model that I want to use moving forward. This is what I want to get more information about, and this is what I want my practice um, to, to uh, evolve into. And so let's just talk through three of these models here for supervision. All right, the first one is Anderson's Continuum of Supervision. And again, you can find this on the handout here. It's a conceptual model and it's often referred to in the communication sciences and disorders literature. So this is probably one of the ones, it was, it's a kind of older, I believe it's 1988. So you might have even had this <laughs> when you were in school. This may have been around as long as you've practiced. And so let's look at this. So this model describes supervision as a continuum of three stages. And again, this is really, really, I would say the traditional ap approach to supervision because it's been around so long. So evaluation and feedback where you're doing lots of walking through where the student is getting almost constant feedback from you about what they're doing, where you are constantly evaluating what they're doing. You, you are, again, in there. It's just that direct one-on-one -on -one piece. You're spending every, almost every minute of the time with them, certainly at the beginning of the semester or the beginning of a CF's time with you. This is certainly uh, where we are with them. The next one is transitional. So we're moving beyond that hand-holding phase where they have some independence. And then the last phase, don't think about it as independent independence, think about it as self-supervision. And so again, this is where a student, again, uh, relies on themselves to really uh, uh, self-supervise and to have self-control and to self-monitor and to make sure that, again, they are doing all the things that they should be doing to competently practice. Now, these stages aren't time-bound. Lots of times it's dependent on where a student is in her knowledge base, her or his knowledge base there, uh, what semester they're in. If they're kind of a kid person or, or let's say it backwards, if they're an adult 
adult person, but they have to come to you for some portion of their uh, practicum experience in grad school because we all have to get a solid experience. And they're not even really a kid person, but they're going to need a lot more hand-holding and a lot more coaching than your uh, person who knows she's going to work with kids and who is really dedicated to early intervention and she's already chosen her career path so she's going to have independently sought out some additional experiences I hope and I hope that she has matched her own skill set to the things that she needs in early intervention but sometimes not sometimes uh, students in even in grad school completely switch course because they've always envisioned themselves as working with a certain population or in this kind of setting and then they for something happens and they change their minds and so we have to always be aware of that and always aware of you know how students are coming to us and sometimes we don't take the opportunity at the beginning of the semester to get to really know them and understand them and understand that so if you are in a birth to three practice and that's your primary your goal and then you've had someone who's coming in who thought that she wanted to work in adult rehab uh, the the uh, again, she's going to be a totally different kind of student to supervise than someone who knows this is what she wants to do. That person may change their minds mid practicum experience with you. You know, have the time of their lives with you and say, "This is what I was made to do." And so again, we have to be aware of those things and get their stories and really, really listen to them from the very, very beginning, so we understand where they are in this whole process. Um, and, and one other thing is there are situational variables as well. And so uh, you may certainly have a caseload that's harder than any caseload you have ever had at any time in your career. And so when you get a student coming into that, that's going to be a different experience than when you had a population or a caseload that was a little bit easier to work with. And so we certainly experience those waves during our career where sometimes we think you know this is this is just the hardest group of you know whatever your number is 20 kids I've ever seen 30 kids I've ever seen in my life you know where did all these kids come from how do I have so many kids with so many needs at one time on my caseload and so certainly a student in that situation with you in that season of your career it's going to be a lot different than in a different season an easier season all right so the continuum uh, changes over time for both the clinical educator and the student or even a mentor uh, of a clinical fellow. The amount of direct supervision, meaning what you're doing with them, direct instruction, modeling, demonstration, as that, uh, all that decreases, the amount of student participation should increase. And so even though you are supervising uh, you know, with stu a student with your own little private or personal caseload, and you feel like, okay, this this is, you know, these these kids, these families are going to be with me after this student leaves. You've still got to give them enough opportunity to really practice and really get good at, at doing their own thing and, and, and staying in there and finding their own rhythm, even if it really differs from yours. You've got an obligation to that person to help them find their way, even if you feel like this is, you know, these are my, my personal little babies. And again, I'm going to have these after I've said bye-bye to you and sent you on to your next uh, student placement site, we still have to be sure that we are allowing the student participation to increase so that they're getting the experience that they need. So in Anderson's continuum of supervision, there are five components of the supervisory process to facilitate movement of that student along the continuum of being totally supervised to transitioning to self-supervision. So number one is just understanding the supervisory process. So discussing the process at the beginning, saying to a student, 
you know, at the beginning, we're going to be doing everything together. I'm going to be showing you how we do all of this. We're reviewing all of this together. But by the end of the semester, I want you to be able to blah, blah, blah. It could be, you know, uh, write an evaluation report by yourself. It could be conduct our whole week of sessions uh, independently, just with me kind of in the background. Whatever you decide is your goal. And again, a first semester grad uh, student is going to be different than a third semester grad student, right? And a clinical fellow way beyond what we would expect from that first semester grad student. And so we have to talk about those and with our expectations with that student. We have to understand the respective roles in the supervisory process. So we have to really, again, be empathetic to that student's position and where they are in his or her education there and understand, again, where they're coming from and what their overall career goals are going to be. And again, like we said, a student that we know is going in earlier intervention with us, that's going to be different than someone who's saying to us, look... <laughs> I'm here to get this experience, but my my ultimate, my, my, my career placement, I hope, is going to be this. And again, make those distinctions and understand those. And certainly sharing expectations and objectives uh, with the, the students that we supervise. The next part is planning. So this is joint planning for the clinical process. And again, this is uh, we're the clinician and we serve our clients, but it's also the supervisor, supervisee role. So really planning how that's going to look. Most of the time, university programs send students to us with their own tools. So we have this, the, the university's set of guidelines and we have the grading scale and we have what we hope they're uh, or what we know their process is going to be, but we have to uh, set up what, what the student's hopes are too. What does she want to be able to do by the end of the semester? Now, lots of them aren't even going to know. <laughs> They're just going to say, to be ready to get my first job or, you know, whatever that is. And again, I'm not being derogatory and I'm certainly not, uh, you know, I'm, I'm kind of telling you here how, what I would have said if I were in that role. And so again, we have to understand where they are in that whole process and really plan what we want to take place during that time or that semester that they're with us. The next one is observing and so we're collecting and recording objective data and this is again by both the supervisor and the supervisee and so there is a responsibility on the part of the student to be able to know hey I'm doing terrible with this this is something I really struggle with and so many times students are afraid to tell us that I mean we know <laughs> we know but sometimes we don't understand how uncomfortable they are we we don't understand hey she really doesn't know how to do this nobody's ever talked to her about this before or she just has a textbook knowledge of this she's never ever seen autism in real life or she's never used pecs she just knows that picture systems are out there she's never even she might have even been erroneously using the term pecs for any kind of picture system that she used and again I'm just taking these really common frequent examples of things that we could talk about there and so again you also want to challenge your students to really observe and to, for them to really pay attention to what they don't know yet and so that they can say to you hey you did that with them today and that that worked great I've I've never seen that before or I I, I didn't think it would I didn't think it would look like that or you know whatever it is that you're talking about that a student can feel comfortable enough to be really really honest and say I know that I need some more help with this 
analyzing is this next component and it's really examining and interpreting the data in relation uh, to changes in the clinician and the client and so sometimes again students don't really know how to analyze progress and so they've done a good job of data collecting and but they might not understand gosh this child is just he's not moving as fast as he should or this parent isn't really coming along with what we need them uh, where we need them to be with their child in order to really facilitate whatever it is that we're working on with them and so we help them analyze and make those critical uh, judgments and sometimes uh, lots of times kind of change course uh, even in a treatment plan to say, hey, this is not working. We've got to back up. We've got to, we've got to get a new plan here. We've got to do something else. And so really helping them begin to analyze the things that they're seeing in therapy sessions. And then the last piece, of course, is integrating that. So integrating content from all components at various points throughout the experience. So those are the things. Those are the five components. And so by actively participating in all aspects of the clinical process, and we've got to, again, have them not only good at data collection, but problem solving strategy development so that they ultimately develop the ability to use those strategies that they need to be able to function independently so they have this kid on their caseload and their caseload alone so that they are totally prepared to be able to do that and so we think about that and think about that during uh, supervision. I want to talk for a minute about data collection. And I have really, you know, it's something that we as clinicians all talk about and struggle with. And, uh, you know, do, do you really, do you take uh, real-time data? or Do you go back and look at it? You know, if you have the opportunity to video sessions, is it something that you take every session or do you do it every three or four sessions you've got to really walk students through that process and so that they can understand that you are collecting data and what you're doing with that i like to have students collect data i think that's a wonderful thing for them to do that whole first uh, few weeks that they are with you so that they really understand and so that they see that you are tying therapy and you to the activities and your that everything it's not just that that I go in the toy room and I decide well we're going to play with some puzzles and then we're going to play with some baby dolls and then we're going to play with puzzles uh, bubbles that's not all there is to EI therapy right it's not just picking a developmentally appropriate material although that's a really big important part that lots of uh, new clinicians and students need help with but at the same time so that they're seeing my goals are this and these are the materials that are going to help me work on that and with with this kid I might play the same toy or the same activity and have a totally different focus than when we do it with the next kid this afternoon and so really helping them and I think data collection helps the student focus on that because they're documenting uh, what our goals are and so if we have a child who's working on single words so that they are keeping a word list if we have a child who's working on gestures so that they are you know really documenting you know what those gestures are he pointed and he clapped and oh he uh, he did some gimme fingers when he wanted me to do it so that they are really again doing not just what our parent we teach parents to do but that little that next step and so I think data collection is a great way to help students learn how to do that uh, I think communicating with parents is something that we really really have to teach students how to do by just diving in there and having them do that with us and help and giving them tools with good information to share not just something they're coming up with off the top of their heads while they're sitting there in that pressure situation with what they should say but really helping uh, 
students and helping new clinicians develop their own scripts and develop the kinds of things that we've all learned how to say to parents over time, they get the benefit of coming in and learning from our mistakes, right? Because we can help them and we can get them over that bump. So teaching students how to communicate with parents and how to teach parents how to do therapy. You know, in grad school, we learned all the intervention techniques and strategies or some of them, you know, lots of things we learn on our own when we're really working because we're forced to find a solution But at the same time, it's so, so different than what we've learned, again, in a textbook situation or even in a university setting. And so we want to be sure that our students and our new clinicians are making those connections. And really, you know, we learn how to do therapy in grad school, but we don't always learn how to teach parents how to do therapy. And that's our main job as early intervention professionals. So we have to do a a great job with that, not only with teaching students the, the strategies and the methodologies ourselves, but then how do they know how to do it well enough so then they can go on and teach parents how to do it. And we've already talked about how hard it is to navigate through just some of those real life situations and scenarios that you face when you do a lot of home visits. So, you know, what do you do about siblings? What do you do when the neighbor comes over with her five kids? What do you do you know, when grandma is there and when she's, uh, or when dad is there and, and he's belligerent and doesn't agree that his child should even have therapy, you know, all these confrontational things that we learn over time, we can prepare our students for those things. You know, lots of things will happen during the semester that they're with us, but just the stories that we tell and just the way that we relate and we say, oh, well, this family's doing this, but let me, let me share a similar situation that I had that's, that's sort of like this, but let me share what we did in this situation that's a little bit different. Let's talk about why that is. And so again, helping students and new clinicians really navigate uh, through those processes. All right, let's move on. That was Anderson's model. So you can think, is that me? Do, do, is that what I do? Do I really think about, you know, a real hand on hand, hand on hand, a lot of hand holding or one-on-one hand in hand at the beginning of the semester and then through the semester, do I help, do I see that there the readiness signs for transitioning or do I just kind of let everybody go at, you know, week five or week six, you know, what's your process there? You know, start to kind of think about how you do this as a supervisor and, and really, again, you know, is this, is this how you practice? Is this what you want your model to be? Let me introduce you to another model that you might be using, another supervision model. So this one is called the Supervision Questioning and Feedback, so the SQF model of clinical teaching. So what's this one? It integrates supervision, questioning, and feedback into clinical learning experiences. So that means we're still going to stay with the supervision piece where we are directly showing a clinician, a student, how to do what we want them to do. And I always think about that tell him, show him, help him model that I use for uh, parent education. Same thing here with a student or with a new clinical fellow. You know, we're telling them what we want them to do, we're showing them, and then we're helping them and providing that, that extra little rung of assistance that they need it. But the SQF is like this, except the second piece is they use strategic questioning to facilitate development of clinical reasoning skills by providing a model of thinking and then the last thing with meaningful feedback. So let's just talk about this. And so supervision there, again, it's like the Anderson model in that you are providing the amount of supervision, whether it's time and effort or uh, quality, you know, you are basing that on what that student needs. Is this a person 
that you're supervising who needs lots of visual demonstration or can you refer them to an article or a handout that you give them or can they just listen to you talk about it in the car <laughs> from one kid to another if they're actually riding with you you know at the beginning or you know is is your time sufficient with them you know between uh, your 10 o'clock and then your 11 o'clock is a no-show and so you know by the time you get to your afternoon kids is that sufficient enough time for you to talk them through some of these things and then they hit the ground running uh, the next time that they're uh, with that client or in that situation and you want them to be able to use those skills and so you judge that and you base your you adjust your own supervisory styles based on what they need or do again do you just do the same old thing for everybody so you've got to really really think about that and and, and again uh, we need to be tailoring our supervision practices and experiences just like we uh, tailor the individual needs of clients and their families the next part of this beyond supervision is strategic questioning and I love this and I've added these questions to your handouts because I think it's such an important lesson for us as communication experts to be able to demonstrate with a student. And so again, this consists of consciously adapting the timing, order, and phrases of questions to help a student process information at increasingly more complex levels. And we do this with parents too, but you may not be doing this as intentionally as you want to. And sometimes I think even with parents, and we certainly do this with students, we might be at where we think we are at a higher level or they're at a higher level of thinking than they really, really are with regard to where we are with this child's uh, therapy strategies. And so when we follow a continuum of strategic questioning that where we address the complexity of what we uh, want the student to be able to explain to us or a parent that's where we can really really facilitate some phenomenal growth so let's look at the order of complexity for these questions and again you can find this on your handout so the first one is recall of facts and so i'm just going to give uh, an example or two as we go along with this that might help you start to think about how you could change some of these practices in your own uh, supervision and so so recall the facts. Are you asking your student ever to just, you know, answer a question for you? How many words should a kid have by 24 months? Or what's in, in normal and typical language development by 18 months? What would we expect a child to be able to do? And again, you might think, oh, I can't put a clinician on the spot like that. I don't know if she knows that. You should know and they should know too. And these are the kinds of things that they should be explaining. You know, we should say, what are some things that we look for when we are suspecting autism with a kid? You know, can you tell me three things that we could look for? Or even after a visit, like a statement of fact here, you should say, you know, gosh, that kid had a lot of characteristics of autism. And I know we talked about that with the mom a little bit. But what are some things that you saw? Can you tell me some things? And again, sometimes we don't do that direct questioning enough with students we just assume that they know or we say you know that's too much like a classroom experience but this is when they really really learn it so that's a great one recall effects the second one is comparison so we certainly are doing this when we do an assessment or an evaluation we're always comparing what we're always comparing that child to milestones or what we ex would expect to see. And so those are the kinds of comparisons that we want to make too. How did that little girl that we just saw 
uh, what, what do you, how did she compare to typical language development? You know, what did you see in there? Uh, you know, uh, again, you're comparing there. You're saying, what, what does this child look like according to this standard? And so you help, help kind of do that. Or it might even be something like with diagnosis-wise. Maybe you're struggling with even thinking about, you know, is this child, would he get an autism diagnosis? Oh, he's so borderline here. So, you know, again, you do some comparisons there and you help a student or help a new clinician walk through the same kinds of things that you're walking through there in your mind. Analysis is the next part. And so let's just use that same example I started with, with how many words should a child have by 24 months? You know, that's kind of a recall of facts. And then comparison, how does this little guy compare to normal language acquisition? And then analysis, you should say, okay, well, he only has three words and he's 30 months old. What does his vocabulary size tell you? What what are you thinking here? Let's analyze this. Is he below normal? And again, really helping a therapist or a new therapist or a student be, be able to be a therapist and think like that and walk through that. The next one is synthesis and application of knowledge. So what do we know about this kid? He has a language delay. Let's look at the next piece. Is he going to meet eligibility criteria for our program? And so how will we apply this knowledge? The ability to evaluate information is the next piece. So are there any other factors we should consider here? You know, we've already said he's a late talker. Is there anything else in his history that, you know, kind of contributes to this? And so you're walking through and you're helping them put together. Oh, well, he has a family history of late talking. Or, oh, he, he got tubes. You know, mm, no wonder his articulation is terrible because he had eight in ear infections by the time he was 18 months old. And so, again, we're helping them put all of this information together. We uh, talk about formulating plans. So you ask a uh, grad student directly, what's our recommendation going to be? Or you ask a new CF, what are we going to recommend? What do you think we're doing for this kid? And so they're coming up with the plan, and then you're making sure that they, uh, the last two, can infer meaning. So can we justify services to our IFSP and IEP teams? Can we explain why we're recommending what we're recommending, and then can we defend those decisions? So I love that continuum of questions, and I'm going to use that from now on to be sure that I'm really, really, again, taking someone at the beginning of the semester and there are my expectations for them being different by the end of the semester with where they would, we would expect them to be. The last part of this supervision model with the SQF model is uh, feedback. And so we have the supervising part and then the strategic questioning and then feedback. And so there are three times types of feedback that can be utilized in this model. So confirming lets a student know when their knowledge and skills are being applied correctly. So that's confirming. Corrective, what's that mean? You let them know when their skills are not on target and then guiding. It reinforces and advances current levels of knowledge and skills. So anytime we're giving feedback, we should think about those three things are our big objectives. Am I confirming what you've done? Am I providing any kind of constructive correction for you? This is what you should should do differently? And then how can I guide you to make a different decision next time or to reinforce uh, the clinical decision or the clinical application that you've already done so well? All right, so specific questioning and feedback techniques certainly depend on the clinical situation. It depends on the student clinician and where she is in her education that we've already talked about. Certainly is appropriate to the task he or she is trying to complete. And so certainly we have different uh, expectations with that too. 
a really complex kid, let's say, you know, the hardest kid on your caseload, that's going to be uh, a little more challenging for that student to think about and to be able to competently provide services. Why? Because you've already said they're the hardest person on your caseload. And so you as a practicing clinician who's had years and years of experience already think that. And so certainly a student's going to struggle with that kid or a new clinician is going to really, really struggle with that kind of situation because they don't have the benefit of the miles that you already have. And so be sure that you are really thinking about that and adjusting your expectations uh, for that as well. All right, the last model here is called the Cognitive Apprenticeship Instructional Model. And this was introduced by Collins, Brown, and Newman in 1989 as an instructional model for situated learning in which students learn to apply skills by performing tasks and solving problems in a variety of authentic contexts. And so you can certainly set this up where there's some simulated things and they do things like this in the university setting. But we, in real-life practical practicum experiences, are always doing it with real people and in a real context. So let's walk through uh, these following teaching methods. And again, this promotes learning. And you'll recognize these uh, stages and these uh, techniques here because the, uh, lots of our coaching models that we're currently using with parents in our early intervention programs, we're also using these things. And I th again, I think we as early interventionists are in a, such a better position to be able to supervise students than maybe uh, our colleagues who work in other settings because we're always teaching. We're always teaching parents. We're always teaching teachers, our, our little friends who are in preschool and daycare and always, again, who, whoever the caregivers are that we are uh, seeing a child with because no child can come see us or, you know, they're never by themselves, right? And so we always are all focused on that parent teaching and that caregiver teaching. And so, again, that's why I think we're so uniquely qualified to do this and have such an advantage over uh, our colleagues who practice in other settings. So the first one here is modeling. So what's modeling? We know it's just demonstrating task and explaining the internal cognitive processes that we are going through. So we are, again, showing them what we want them to do. We're giving them visual cues <laughs> for uh, how we want them to uh, behave, what, what strategies we want them to use with a certain child. And so, again, modeling. The next part is coaching. And so we're watching students as they perform the task, and we're providing that feedback. It, we might even do some cues and some hints with them, some reminders. And, again, sometimes I think... We do a lot of this coaching after we've seen a student clinician or a new clinical fellow provide services when I think so many of those things would be done and would be more effective on the front end so that we're coaching uh before the session happens so that we're saying, now remember with this kid, these are the goals that we're working on today. And so remember, these are our strategies. So these are the things that I want to be sure that you and I both are implementing as we work with this child and his mom today. And so again, you're not saving all that coaching for the end to let a student know what they did wrong or right. We're doing a lot of that in the beginning. And again, we can even do that as we move throughout the session. There's, uh, We have to be careful about that, though, because we never want to undermine professionalism or uh, competency so that we give uh, the impression to the parents or the family that the student is somehow has a subpar performance there. We want to be super careful about that when it's in front of another 
Uh, even another colleague uh, from another discipline, no student likes to feel like they are always low man on the totem pole, and they're the only person in the room who doesn't know what anybody else is talking about. And so we have to be really, really super careful with that. Uh, the next component here is scaffolding, and we certainly know what that means. It means tailoring support to the student's current level of knowledge and gradually removing that support as they become more competent. And we've talked about that model at the beginning where everybody is, you know, one one-on-one, -on -one, hands-on at the beginning of the semester, and then we relinquish a lot of that direct, uh, you know, my thumb on them as the semester <clears throat> unfolds because they've developed some more skills, and we're comfortable that they are using strategies and implementing the right techniques as they're working with their clients. And so, again, we release some of that. We're not, you know, maybe we're not talking about every session, you know, hot and heavy uh, before and after it like we did before. We're pulling some of that back or maybe you as the uh, supervisor, the clinical educator there, you're not doing as much direct one-on-one uh, -on -one with a family or with the child while the student's there. You're, you're more there, I guess more, you could say more for the student, but not really. But your role again there is, is you're just, you're watching. You're doing a lot more of that. And again, really tailoring uh, the level of support that you're providing right there. The next piece is articulation. So encouraging students to verbally express their knowledge, reasoning, or problem solving. And so this is what we talked about before with the last model, with the uh, strategic question that you ask so that you really see that a student can demonstrate increased critical thinking as the semester moves on or increased problem solving or they are a lot more independent in that they're able to match their activity with the goal that they're supposed to be working on and it's not just that they get a little script when they play with bubbles or when they offer a child snack as whatever the activity is that they don't do the same thing with every kid that they understand that we take this activity and we we adjust it based on what a child and what a family are working on and just because a kid has some that we might recommend some specific strategies for bath time with this mom is uh, for you know as we're looking at uh implementing our strategies and embedding our into everyday routines that we we're making sure that with the next mom that the strategies aren't cookie cutter there that we're really adjusting those and so we're helping students and and we know that's not just what they write on the report but they really understand what they're talking about so we have them articulate that back to us and we do it again with questions that we talked about in the last model but we really help them be able to explain those things they don't have to explain it for the first time to a parent you know they should be able to practice on us and so we have them do that as a part of our education experience with them the next piece is reflection and we're going to talk about that with this tool that I'm going to show you in the next section or two but encouraging students to reflect on their own skills and their own problem-solving abilities as compared uh, with their cognitive model of expertise so how are they doing with uh, comparing their performance. A lot of times they, you know, they're comparing your performance to theirs or their performance to yours, or they might be thinking, you know, comparing their performance with their own little uh, set of friends from grad school, their own little peer group. And so you have to really help them be able to do that and objectively look at themselves. And I think that's one of the skills that all of us as adults have a really hard time doing. I mean, parents and therapists, Certainly, I hear this all the time from therapists who've been practicing for years and years. They'll say things like, 
I do it just like you do it. And maybe I have the benefit of watching. They'll send me some videotape. And I don't do that a lot anymore. Don't start sending me your videos. Please don't. <laughs> I will not have time to respond. But in the past, like when I worked with families and would do, when I would go, uh, like an out-of-state visit when I when a family would uh, invite me to come and participate in their child's uh, therapy session. Let's say they have a big team and I'm going to work with the team and, you know, the therapist, I've had some conversations with them and, and she really says, gosh, I'm doing it just like you recommend. And boy, my sessions look just like your sessions. And then I go and it's nothing, you know, it's, we're comparing apples and rocks, you know, it's just completely different. And again, I'm not saying that their approach is wrong or I do it always right. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that we don't always have an ability to accurately self-reflect. And so we have to help our students be able to do that. And that's why I'm going to give you a tool that will help you help them. But that, that, Peace is really, really hard for a lot of adults and even for a lot of us who've worked for a long time. And so we have to help people uh, be able to accurately self-supervise by being uh, participating in that, being able to do a really honest self-evaluation. The last piece here is exploration. So setting general goals for students uh, and then encouraging them to formulate and pursue personal goals of interest. So we say you know, what? these are our goals or these are the things that you need to be able to do by the end of the semester. But what are your goals? What are, what, what is your, uh, with a student, you know, what, where do you want to work? Where do you, where do you see yourself? Where do you want to do, be able to do your CF? What kind of population do you want to work with? Lots of times students know, but sometimes they don't. And so it helps them as they're able to talk about it and articulate those things and really, again, learn how to, learn how to share that information. You know, you may have some great guidance guidance that you would not have been able to share with them uh, or would have been able to share with them had you only known what their ultimate goals were or what their what what they want to do after the, they're beyond you and so we've got to have those conversations and you've got to be able to help them explore and so here this makes our practice explicit so what does that mean it means that we're not leaving anything to uh you know, she was here, she was with me a semester, she could pick it up on her own just by osmosis, by her just being in the same room with me, she's going to learn how to do therapy, like I think it's, you know, evidence-based practice here, we don't want to do that, we want to make our processes really, really as concrete as we can, so that we are making sure that a therapist is competent by the time uh, that they leave us. So let's talk about now some common challenges during supervision and how to overcome those. So uh, the first one is communication. And uh, here, just one of the biggest challenges, and I've already said this, in supervising students, even for us in as communication professionals, is communication. And I am serious about that. And this is really, really true when there starts to be you know, it actually don't even, I'm not even going to say that. This is true throughout your career. You could be a brand new clinician. Let's say you're a clinician who has three years experience and this is your first time to supervise a student. You may have some difficulty with communicating with that student because you're so close to the same age and so close to the same peer group. And so you may take more of a friendship approach or more of a buddy-buddy kind of here when really you need to be probably having a little more professionalism in how you supervise. And so even though you are developing that relationship and you see yourself as being friends after the fact and going on to that, you know, while you 
have that uh, supervisor, supervisee, or uh, student clinical educator role, you've got to do something different. And uh, certainly we see this with generational differences when we become a little bit older and we start to supervise students and we just might dismiss things as such. She's a millennial. These kids are different these days, you know, and I I feel so funny even saying that, you know, feeling so old uh, saying those things, but communication challenges can really, really make or break a student practicum experience or even a CF when you have those uh, real differences there. You know, now in this age of looking at diversity and inclusion and gender and all those things that we are not going to get into, but those present their own sets of communication challenges there. And so we've got to be aware of that as supervisors. Uh, I was watching a podcast totally unrelated to speech language pathology and uh, some physicians were talking about uh, some different things. I think this is a show about COVID. And so they were talking about the difference just in medical residents now versus when they were uh, doing their residencies and trainings. And, and those hosts were, you know, in their 50s, so right at my age. And so, you know, they were kind of talking about that generational gap. And so we've always thought of ourselves as, you know, just young and cutting edge. And now suddenly, you know, again, we're getting on up there. And so, uh, we have to be aware of, of just not uh, discriminating or not hazing kind of based on that or you know these kids and what these that they were saying is physicians is you know they were saying something like you know when I went into my ER residency I knew that I clocked into work on Friday afternoon and I'm not going to leave until Monday night and these kids today need a break after 12 hours it's nothing like you know and we all do that I mean we certainly heard our own supervisors complain about those things and so we have to be sure that we are successfully now navigating those communication challenges that come with those kinds of differences in our expectations there. And so it's one of the big components in the clinical education process is learning how to communicate and learning how to set those realistic expectations and and make sure that they're realistic, that you aren't being an ogre in what your expectations for your student are. And so we have to be sure that we're using effective interpersonal communication strategies. So let's just review some of those, adult to adult, right? And so just basic principles of how we communicate with other people. The ability to listen. (laughs) The ability to listen silently. So without interrupting, without offering our own opinions. And again, we as the experts, the older supervisor, want to do that you know when you see someone floundering you want to jump in and just save them and kind of cut them off when really we should be listening and really hearing so we can know what their knowledge gaps are or know that they reached a completely different opinion than you on this particular uh, child that you're talking about but you listen to their rationale and their critical thinking and you think well gosh I see how she got there well this might be valid this might be something you know I've never considered I totally applaud her effort here and so again until we're listening and until we're using the questioning techniques that we talked about that really our expectations change we can't expect you know uh, a first semester first clinical rotation grad student to be in the same place that our CFs are in you know six months in it's just you know there's about a year gap there right or a year and a half gap there in just 
time with education. And so really, really using those behaviors and uh, tailoring our communication with that student so that we have those different expectations. Things like paraphrasing, things like empathizing, things like supporting, those are all things we need to be doing. And again, you might think, oh, that's so touchy-feely for me. I didn't have that for my supervisor. My supervisor was so hard on me. Da-da-da-da-da. You know, again, you kind of kind of put that aside and and really, really be able to communicate and, and not have not and you not be the horror story <laughs> for a clinician who's going to go on to talk about the supervisory experiences that she had. Another big uh, strategy here that we need to uh, go into supervisory experiences being aware of is conflict resolution. And so we know we can anticipate that we'll have some differences in opinion and that we'll we might think that a student's attendance is just not what it should be. And so we're going to have to have those difficult uh, situations or those difficult conversations where we actually talk through some of that. And you see, maybe you think, gosh, she has excessive absenteeism. She's missed four times, you know, in a month. What's going on here? And until you have those conversations about that, and again, what your expectations are and what what those things are uh, going on in his or her life, you know, you're not going to know uh, so that you can, again, appropriately resolve that conflict. So uh, we've already talked about understanding different learning styles. We certainly know that some clinicians are going to come to us. We, we as uh, speech-language pathologists, think about everybody as sometimes as ultra-verbal. And so meaning that everybody's just going to be a talky, chatty, patty, and just talk everything out, but some of our students may not be that way. They be, may be more reflective. They may be more introverted than extroverted. And so uh, their learning styles, they may be totally visual. When you were in grad school or a new student, somebody could have maybe handed you a book and said, read chapter three and we'll talk next week. But that may not be how a student that you uh, work with processes information. She may need more, again, of a visual demonstration. So she can't just read about, uh, let's say, using expansion. She has to see you using expansion with a client and hear you talk about it and hear you explain it to that parent and then model it with that child and have the parent do it before she understands that. Maybe she, maybe you send her an article or a post, a link from Teach Me to Talk, and you expect her to be able just to synthesize that information like you're able to, but you understand, you know, maybe her, her, um, reading comprehension. She's, she's not a reader. She doesn't learn it from a book like you did. She needs, she's more kinesthetic. She's more hands-on. So she's got to actually see you do it. So think about those different learning styles. And that might be something that you want to ask and that you want to talk about with your students or your new CFs at the beginning. So that you're figuring out, you know, how do they best learn information? Do they need to hear you talk about it? Can they just read it and you talking about it to them is just uh, too much? It's overwhelming. They, after a while, don't even process what you're saying. And so you need to know that about them. And then uh, we've talked about the different communication styles. We've talked about the generational differences. There can certainly be cultural uh, differences there. There can be gender differences. There can be regional differences. You know, as someone who's from the South, 
of the United States if I had trained in the Northeast. I think my experience might have been a little different. I think uh, instead of embracing my Southern dialect, that might have even been an issue. And I certainly know that just from uh, parents that I've worked with, you know, who might say something with me being so Southern and hanging on to this Southern drawl. You know, I've had worked with families from the Northeast, you know, that the dad will just straight up say to me, I hope he's not going to talk like you. And they are dead serious when they say it. And so again, even those things like dialect, if you're supervising a student or a new CF who's from another country or has a different uh, culture, a different cultural experience, you know, those are the things that families might need some help navigating too. And so we have to really, really think about that and be aware of that and adjust our supervisory styles uh, to accommodate that difference there. And so when we look, when clinical educators pay attention to effective communication style, students are going to be a lot more willing to participate in the whole supervisory process. Maybe they're even asking for feedback or asking you things, and they're going to be more open to your suggestions and more open to constructive criticism uh, than they would be otherwise. And so we have to really, really be sure that we are being very concrete with our expectations. All right, so the second or second common challenge that we face during supervision uh, is thinking students, uh, helping students learn how to think critically. And so that's part of being a therapist. That's how you know when you've moved from kind of that new, uh, I think I know everything, and then you realize, oh, I hardly know anything at all. How am I going to even do this job to, hey, I've got my feet on the ground here. I've got to hold on what I'm doing. This is going okay. And so we have to help help uh, students and new therapists get there. And so we have to nurture the disposition toward clinical thinking. And so this is very, very different from a classroom experience. So many times professors in university programs are focused on the their star students who were so academic, who have a 4.0, who just could regurgitate lots of information and maybe you're able to even on paper demonstrate some uh, critical thinking and problem solving but then you put them in front of a real kid in a real family and they aren't very good at it at all and so sometimes there's just a real disconnect and I I know from talking to a younger speech pathologist who's in her first semester of supervising students and she that's part of the responsibility at her organization she just has a fabulous job but again it's so funny to kind of uh, for her to see that and for her to see that sometimes the best students don't make the best therapists and don't make the best clinicians. Now, that's not always true. You may have been a very good student. I was a really good student. I think I'm pretty good at this job. But at the same time, you know, sometimes there's that big gap there. And so we have to uh, help those students learn how to get it from kind of that book knowledge to uh, take that theory to the floor and be able to implement those things. And so uh, one of the ways that we do this, we've already talked about it, is asking questions. We do not depend on that student just to, by osmosis, be able to gain the information that we want to share with them. We are making sure that we are, are sure that they understand what we're trying to teach them. So we're providing a model for how practicing clinicians reason. So we're saying things like, 
oh, I don't know, what do you, you know, let's talk about AAC in this little boy. Let's talk about the reasons that I think, you know, he may or may not. And again, you're helping a student walk through that process. You can say, what do you think? Do you think he's a kid that we need to explore AAC? And so you ask them real pointed questions and you see how they are beginning to make some of these decisions. And when we're doing this, we're providing a lot of structure so that we're helping a student, again, learn how to think and learn how to walk through these processes. And so we challenge student clinicians to apply their thinking beyond just this reason, this just, you know, kind of the, the, what they think might happen, you know, kind of this reasonable expectation to what really happened with this kid or, or what you know these other factors might be. And so we help them begin to think and to generalize. And so um, that, that's a big piece of it. And let's talk about the feedback piece because that's our third common challenge during supervision. And we talked about it a little bit already when we were looking at the, at that second model of supervision, the strategic uh, questioning and feedback model. Here with feedback, we have to know again that this, this is a common challenge. You know, do I, am I giving too much feedback? You know, does the therapist, but the student clinician or the new therapist by the end of the day just want to say, please, be quiet. You know, I don't want to hear you again till Monday. You know, are they that fed up with every, you know, we've just almost vomited feedback all day long to them. You know, is it too much? And so we have to really, really think about that. Just like our clients, we have to think about the reasons that we're giving feedback. Remember what we said, we're going to confirm their choice or reinforce that behavior, correct their behavior, or and promote that improvement in the future. And so we can't just always have our feedback be verbal. We have to look at other kinds of feedback too. And so what is the objective data? And again, when we use non-judgmental data and we analyze that and share that with someone that we're supervising, it's a lot different than when we just say something like, gosh, your report writing really, mm, um, mm, you know, those kinds of things that we want to say. You know, you give that objective data. You say, last time we looked at a report, these were the sections that, um, that, you know, we didn't see that you list, you know, and you, you give this really specific things. You know, I didn't see that you list assessment results. I didn't see uh, very many behavioral observations on there that supported why you want to recommend that he uh, get uh, additional assessment for autism. You know, you've got to put that in report the report if that's one of our recommendations. And so, again, you're being super, super specific. You're giving that objective data. Objective data can be great even in the context of everyday supervision, too. If you're, if you're expecting a student to be able to do parent training and y'all talk about parent training but they never jump in or they never offer a strategy to a parent they're not doing any parent training and so that might be something you say is you know today I want you to track every time that you are offering a parent a recommendation and then I'm, I want you to you know by the end of this week I want you to really encapsulate that so that at the end of the session you are talking to parents about this is what I want you to do between now and the next time that we see you and so you're being objective about that you're setting the expectation you know I'm going to be collecting data on this <laughs> for you this week because this is where we need to improve your performance and so that ob objectivity there really helps us as supervisors be fair and then as uh, the student or the new clinician being supervised again it's it's really really fair because you've set that expectation and then you're being really objective about it you know did I get a plus or did I get a minus you know did I get a tally mark or did she not 
I didn't do it. So she wasn't able to give me credit for that. And so that's certainly a way that we can think about using feedback versus that was good. You did so great. Or, oh, we got to work on this. You know, again, it's really, really objective. The second way that we can give feedback is with narratives. And so not just our verbal blah, blah, but written descriptions of specific behaviors during a session. And again, along with your impressions. So you did this in this session and that's going to result in this, you know, maybe you're saying, you know, uh, and I hate to make all of these examples negative, but let me just go ahead. We're going to go ahead with this one. You know, you might say, you know, we're really working on parent involvement here. And I, I didn't really see you address anything to that parent. And again, that might be the verbal thing that you would say, but you can write that out with, you know, uh, again, very specific written feedback with, you know, in, in, uh, Charlie's session yesterday, we parent feedback is what we're working on this week. And I, at the end of this, I didn't hear you recap anything at the end of the session. And only two times during the session did you give mom any feedback. And because of that, that's not going to get her the buy-in that she really needs. And she's probably not going to know what she needs to do this week because you weren't as clear as you needed to be. And so those very specific objective feedback and again in that written form in a narrative that that might be a, a good way to do it and then writing scales and we all know what writing scales are this is um, something that we can use as self-analysis or certainly that as clinical supervisors we can do you know the difference in uh, you know, if, if our scale is zero is terrible and three is good, you know, the difference between a two and a three, and we're explaining that to a clinician, you know, the, to get a three, this is the kind of performance that, that you need to be exhibiting so that they um, are seeing that. But again, remember, rating skills are pretty subjective. So sticking to that objective data, and then when we can put it in writing, it's even better. Okay, factors that can influence the effectiveness of feedback. And so so we know about this with our clients and with the parents that we work with, but let's think about it with students. So what about the timing, the frequency, the tone, the form, and the specificity? So again, are we going to make our feedback immediate or delayed? Are we going to give more feedback or less feedback? And certainly as the semester goes on, we need to be pulling back if we can with our frequency so that students are able to function a little bit more independently. We've got to look at the tone. Is it positive? Is it negative? Is it neutral? Is it balanced? If I have to say something negative, can I find something positive to say too? Our form, spoken or non-spoken, you know, written is always going to be more formal, even if you're writing a smiley face, <laughs> than if you just said, good job. So we have to be careful and think about that. And then the specificity, uh, is it more or less detailed and specific? And so again, great to think about those things uh, clinically and as far as in our supervision, uh, clinically for our kids and then in our supervisory experiences too. And so we want to be sure with feedback, and, and we're talking about here the common challenges. We want to be sure that our feedback is well-timed and expected. Feedback that comes unexpectedly, especially when it's negative, always is met with an emotional response. So if you tell someone how poorly they did, it's the end of the day, they're tired or right before lunch or whatever, Thursday afternoon, 
they're going to have a meltdown, right? Even if it's a 22-year-old grad student, okay? So we have to be really, really careful about that to make sure that our feedback is well-timed and expected. We also want to be sure that we're basing our feedback on firsthand data, focusing on specific performances, not generalizations, and then really address the decisions and actions of the student clinicians and not the assumed actions and interpretations. Because lots of times we always mess up when we're judging someone else's motivation. And so we want to be sure that we are really specific about that. And so let's say something like if you were, you're working with a child who, again, and I don't like to think about kids as working with behavior, but let's just, let's use this as an example. Let's say that, you know, you are trying to help a kid, uh, do better with transitions. And so you want him moving from one activity in therapy better uh, than he's done previously with less begging, less melting down, less sensory response. And let's say that your clinician, you she's trying. She's using lots of if-then statements. You know, if you clean up the blocks, then we can go play in the sandbox. But you know, I mean, that's a good strategy. But you know that your little guy that you're working with can't understand that. So that's above his comprehension level. And so instead of really, really saying, you know, don't use those if-then statements anymore, your uh, questioning might there might be there instead of just giving that directive you know how do you think he responded to that what do you think kept him from moving on what do you think the factors were that that really kept him from being able to transition today as compared to how well he did last session and so you are not assuming their intentions but you're letting them make the interpretations and again don't be so vague that they don't know what you're talking about like I remember one time in my uh uh, CF year, back when we called ourselves CFYs, uh, I had worn something to work that uh, the administrator of the uh, facility that I was working in felt was just a little inappropriate for work. And I didn't think anything about it because, you know, I'm in my 20s and that's how everybody looked. But the supervisor, my supervisor, instead of coming and saying to me, hey, what you wore last Friday, really, uh, I got some feedback on that from the administrator and you want to be careful about that in the future and talking about that with me. He just told me a story about someone else who had dressed inappropriately in another facility. And I just sat there with him like I can't believe that girl did that and all of that and I did I promise I did not realize until days later that he was talking about me <laughs> and so you can't be so vague that they don't understand it but you do have to leave some room for them to be able to interpret and 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 begin to again self-supervise and think oh gosh maybe I should take a look at my own dress code here what what could that be me and so we want to be real careful about that uh, we want to be sure that we're using I statements that focus on the specific behavior and again that allow the student to uh, make their uh, mature and grow so that they can understand that and so receiving feedback always is affected by how receptive a student clinician is to that feedback whether or not they agree with you the particular learning situation and again the personalities and the timing so we have to be so careful with feedback another thing about feedback is that we want new clinicians and our students to be able to seek feedback from us so to come to us and say how do you think i did and so they learn that uh by asking that and by seeking that information themselves they're going it's going to be beneficial to them them, not to shrink back and wait until their supervisor tells them that they've done it right or wrong or whatever, but so that they, again, begin to self-monitor. 
We've already talked about the influence of power and supervision, and we want to be super careful about that. We always want to help avoid intimidation and a reluctance by the student to seek our feedback or to be able to talk with us, and that's always so tricky to navigate. I had a terrible experience with this as well. When I was in grad school, I was uh, I did not go to grad school at the same place that I got my undergrad, so I was a new person coming in, and so with my graduate assistantship, I was assigned to someone who was kind of in a sister program, so not an SLP, and um, it was really hard. I mean, she had a lot of expectations that none of my other friends who were working with the SLP uh, professors had and she wanted me to do a lot of personal things for her that other people weren't having to do like taking doing some things with her dog and I'm not a dog person and take doing some things with her husband's dry cleaning and uh, all of that but you again what the expectations are and and we we have to we have to walk through these and 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 really help students identify these issues and be sure that we are not uh, perpetrating that hazing or intimidation and maybe those things happened in the past but I bet that they're happening now too all right let's move on now and talk about we want to finish up talking about teaching methods and clinical education and so we can be really deliberate with deliberate practice where we have highly structured activities or we can look at this as a more reflective practice so let's contrast deliberate versus reflective deliberate practices where we have specific goals that we are setting up so like if we are teaching a, a, a a test. If we're if we're teaching an assessment, this is how we give the PLS five, or this is how we give this criterion referenced assessment. That can be pretty direct. <clears throat> But reflective practice is where we have the student, instead of waiting on our feedback, to go back and process what happened so that they are able to, again, move on more independently and can start to self-supervise and self-monitor. And so reflective practice involves critical self-analysis, self-evaluation, and problem-solving, and the ability to modify your own behavior. So we can look at reflection on action and reflection in action. Now, reflection on action is when we look at something that happened in the past so we're uh, we're reflecting on an experience with a family or with the client and again this could be good or bad but we're thinking about what happened and processing through that so that we can use that information to make us better next time and then reflective in action is that process of thinking on your feet so when a kid is doing this when your whole plane is falling apart right before your very eyes in a session what do you do how do you adjust how do you tweak so that you can move forward and so we always want to be sure that we're teaching that too and so there are a few ways to do reflective practice you can have the conversations that we've talked about but we've also talked about written uh, feedback and uh, the same is true for written reflection and so I want to give you uh, a tool that I found in one of the supervision courses that I took uh, in preparation for teaching this course and for my own supervision requirement and it's called the Gibbs reflective cycle and this is not just a clinical tool for speech pathology this is a tool that you can use in any field and you can also use it even in your personal lives and i'll just tell you i'm such a geek last week i had a situation happen in my personal life that i thought i was preparing this course and i thought i'm going to do this i'm just going to do this with this situation and it really helped me analyze it and again as someone who is paid to talk and think it was still a fantastic 
experience for me with really looking and seeing on paper the things that had transpired in this event that I was analyzing. And so it really gives structure to the learning uh, process that we have as we gain these personal experiences. And it can help us frame it and think about it in a different way. And so there are six stages. And you can look on your handout. This is page three of your handout so at the very top of this or there's a separate one-page guide that I uh, used from another presentation there and so uh, description of the experience is your first uh, cycle or your first phase here and let me talk about the cycle this is intended to be used for situations that repeat 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 so that again you can gain insight so this is perfect for looking at you know my interactions with this family this week versus next week versus next week or my interactions with this team as I work uh, through this team this whole semester and so a uh, great way to do it for either of those situations so description of the experience your feelings and your thoughts about the experience your evaluation of the experience, whether positive or negative, your analysis to help you process and make sense of that situation, and then the conclusion about what you learned and what you would do differently now. So, uh, and then your action plan, how are you going to deal with these familiar situations in the future? So, let's take a real life example. So, it's not exactly a case study, but it kind of is, and let's just walk through this, and we're going to just talk about it and so that you have some experience and this you want to think about how you would use this with a student and particularly I think it would be I think it's good to use whether the experience is good or bad and if you've had a student that's had a lot of negative experiences and they've had a wonderful experience and things just turned out great I think this would be a wonderful tool for you to use with them to help them see what they did to make that experience so much more positive than perhaps one in the past or the the certainly the opposite is true when we've had a tricky situation that's been really difficult to navigate this would be a time that you could use this tool or even just introduce it at the beginning of the semester and say you know periodically through the semester I want you to use this and I'm going to suggest to you at times that uh, when I think it would be great and you might say and you know when we have our meetings you know and you always need to have really set times for your meetings especially if you're not one-on-one -on -one seeing that person like a CF you're not going to see them every day perhaps if you don't work in the same organization you know when we have our meetings once a month or whatever it is you know this is what I want to see and this is the tool that I want us to use so let's relate this to a client situation let's just say that a student you have had a student and you are working together and you uh, see you have see the child with grandma this week and let's say that that a client your little friend has an, a, an official autism evaluation coming up and let's say that the grandmother just says in the middle of the session to the student clinician do you think he has autism I don't really think he has autism I think it's something else I think his parents are making way too big of a deal about this what do you think and so she's put the student on her feet and let's just say that uh, you know she just froze she's you're having her think on her feet and she just got the deer in the headlights look and she just was really really uncomfortable in that entire situation so let's say that you might use this situation to walk through this so let's pretend that we're the student and the kinds of things that we would write and the kinds of things that as a supervisor we would expect them to say and help them process through it so when you're writing the description 
You might even do it too, so that you are, uh, you know, it's kind of your version versus their version. And again, so many of us catastrophize when we're in the situation that the student was in. You know, it's things are never really as good as we think they are or as bad as they seem, right? And so sometimes having those two accounts of things can uh, help a student kind of move toward, uh, again, not feeling quite so horribly about what happened. But with, with that description part, all we're going to do there is just describe what happened. Who was there? What happened? Where were you? It's kind of the who, what, where, why thing. So you've just got the description. And the next piece, then we're going to move to feelings. So we have the student explore her feelings and her thoughts about what may have impacted that experience. So you walk through. the, And again, you've got a little handout with this. So walk through these questions. What were your feelings during this situation? She might say, I was horribly uncomfortable. <laughs> what were your feelings before and after the situation? You know, she might have said, I didn't expect this session to go this way. I really thought we were going to go in and do this. And then grandma threw me for a loop when she said the kid didn't have autism. You know, and then the student might say, and I felt embarrassed because I froze during that situation. And I'm embarrassed because I was being supervised and I feel like I failed there. And so, again, you might not have a student who would be this honest. You might have a student who might just uh, try to blow it off. Why? Because she's embarrassed and she doesn't really want to, again, be as vulnerable in this kind of situation. So having her write this down will really help her process. And again, we want to promote that professional growth. And so you say, what do you think the other people were feeling? Uh, you know, and, and that's theory of mind, where we try to put ourselves in the other person's situation. And she might not have thought, well, what was grandma feeling when she was saying this to me? And what was grandma thinking? And so you help her walk through that. Was, is grandma scared? Is grandma confused? Is grandma angry? Is she in denial? And so we don't ever really, we can't ever really fully assess someone else's mood, but we can uh, think about it and we can think of what those probabilities are. And again, that helps you relate to that person differently. And so uh, you really say to the girl what, or say to your student, what were you thinking about during that situation? What were your thoughts? And she might say, I was, I was wishing for help. I was hoping you would bail me out, but you didn't. It went on. Or she might say, I was really grateful when you stepped in and I could hear what you said to grandma during that time. And then the next piece of that is evaluation of the experience. And so you evaluate, evaluate what worked and what didn't. And so you want to look at not only being just brutally honest with yourself here, but both positive and negative to get the full effect. So you want to say, well, what did I do right here? What was positive and what was negative or what did I do wrong? And so you ask yourself those questions. What was good about this? What was bad about this? What went well? What didn't go so well? What did I do that contributed uh, negatively or positively to this situation? What did my mentor do that contributed negatively or positively? What did the grandmother do that contributed negatively or positively? And so you evaluate what everyone did uh, throughout this situation, and then you analyze it. And this is the processing part. And again, some of us are naturally good at processing very complex, very difficult, emotional situations, and some of us aren't. And so that's why this writing tool, you know, again, it's, you know, dear diary, kind of, but it's more professional when we do it in this way so that we are 
really analyzing why did things not go well with this? What happened? I just, you know, I, I, and, and you come up with things like I wasn't prepared for this. Or as the supervisor, you might say, gosh, this student needs a better script. She needs to know, you know, she needs to memorize seven signs of autism. She needs to memorize. She needs to know what the official diagnostic criteria for autism is, what falls under section A and what falls under section B. And as the mentor here, you're seeing during this analysis section and this evaluation section, oh, I've got to provide more continuing education for her. She needs some additional training in this area. Or she doesn't really know how to counsel parents. She doesn't really know how to counsel a grandmother and how to how to really help her uh, make, make sense of this. She doesn't understand. Grandmother doesn't understand autism and what it is. And why should she understand that? Should grandmothers come to this uh, therapy session fully aware? You know, no. And so you help a clinician walk through that and you help her see this isn't all about you. A lot of this was just grandmother's discomfort too. And it just kind of all came together. And so again, you come up with some conclusions. You, you talk about what you learned. You're you know, I should be prepared for hard conversations with families. If a child is, if we've recommended an autism evaluation, I better have some real definitive things to say that this is why I recommended that so I can defend my decision. And again, without being defensive so that you can just offer those things uh, just as gently and as calmly and as peacefully as you can. And so you talk about those things. And I think this tool, this reflective cycle is a wonderful way to walk through that kind of really complex situation. The course that I took in this, the, the professor, the person that taught it was a professor, and she used this reflective cycle with her grad students who had team projects and for whom uh, the project didn't go well and they didn't manage their time well and they didn't anticipate a problem that happened. And so again, it helped each student kind of work through what was my part? Well, how did I contribute to this big problem that kind of erupted? And, and you don't have to always do this with things that are negative. Uh, even with the positive things like we talked about, when when a family says to you, you know, oh, I just, I can't thank you enough for introducing us to, you know, whatever, pecs, or uh, I can't, my child has made so much progress, you know, and or the student, she's telling the student, oh, he loves you so much, I, we're just going to miss you so much, and you might have the student kind of walk through specifically why she's saying that to me. What have I done to make this a really positive experience for this family? And why do we do that? It's so that they can duplicate that. And so they can take that success and use that uh, with the next family. And again, that action plan is really, really important. What will I do differently next time? How can I help myself act differently? If I had to do the same thing again, what would, how would my responses be different this time? And again, we're all getting to personal growth. That's what we all want to accomplish with this. So I think it's a great tool, not only for supervisees or students and CFs, but also for us as a supervisor. So if we're having a difficult time with uh, a, a student that we're supervising, we might also use this, you know, maybe let's take that previous example where my CF supervisor, he was trying to tell me that I wore something inappropriate to work. He might do the reflective cycle and go through that and work through, you know, how could I change this differently next time? You know, maybe I could be more direct. So she had an idea of what I'm talking about. Or, you know, again, learning how to use self-analysis to uh, get to the outcome that we want to achieve. 
Now let's take a few minutes to talk about pitfalls to avoid when assessing performance. The first one is easy. It's a halo effect. So this is a cognitive bias in which an observer's overall impression of a person influences the evaluation of specific traits. So let's say that you get the person that a clinical supervisor from a university setting has just bragged on and bragged on and bragged on and you get her and you think she is just the best student clinician that you've ever had. She just wears, again, that little halo up there. And what does that prevent you from doing? It prevents you from being objective about her and from looking at areas that she really could improve. And so she might go again. She might be the best student clinician you've ever had. But by the end of the semester, you want her even better. But when we have a halo effect, we don't provide the constructive feedback that all of us need to continue to grow and improve. So that's the number one pitfall. Number two, central tendency. This is where we rate everybody around the midpoint, no matter how great they do or no matter how poorly they do. This is the same as a, a, a professor or a supervisor who gives everybody a B because they always think, again, everybody has room for improvement without really, uh, you know, kind of having that standard grade, that central tendency where we're all kind of in that midpoint, no matter, uh, again, whether our uh, performance deserves higher than that or lower than that. They're always kind of around there. Another pitfall is a similar to me effect. So the tendency for an individual to give a higher rating to someone who is similar in some way to the writer himself or herself. So similar attitudes or similar demographics. You know, I have a soft spot in my heart for, for therapists or new grad students or clinicians who talk too much, who struggle with organization, who have a hard time kind of uh, closing things out. And why would that be? Because those are things I struggle with too. And so I certainly would maybe overlook some of that because I've normalized it. Or I think, how can I be, give her constructive criticism when I, in my 56 years, have not learned to do better with myself. And so again, that might be a pitfall that we need to be really, really careful of so that we, again, don't miss an opportunity to help someone grow in an area where she might need it. The next one is judgmental bias. This is usually a subconscious tendency to judge someone based on factors unrelated to his or her performance. So let's say that you're supervising a, a male student and you've never had a male and so you might find yourself having some unconscious biases toward that and and so you have to really check yourself there or again I gave that example earlier my experience as a student in the south where everybody sounded very southern like me and all even the most of some of the professors in our programs had southern dialects too but my experience might have been different if I had gone to uh, a university program in another part of the country and so again we look at these judgmental biases we we don't want to have them none of us think we do we think we're colorblind and status blind and all those other things but we have so many things that might influence our decisions so again we have to be super 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 careful about that and then the last pitfall here is leniency or strictness is an error that results when consistently easy or strict criteria are applied in rating an individual regardless of his or her performance and again 
it's different than the central tendency. We might, again, judge everybody and supervise everybody with that strictness factor without uh, accounting for those individual differences. Or it's usually the other way. We give everybody an A with their clinical practicum, no matter even if it was fantastic or, um, again, just terrible, you know, everybody gets an A because, you know, I'm not going to ever have a grad student that I give a B to because I don't, I don't want to mess up anybody's GPA. I don't want anybody, blah, 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 blah. You don't want to do that. You really want to judge people uh, by their own individual performances, just like you want to be judged that way too. And so how can we avoid those pitfalls? We're clear with our educational plans and objectives. We set those expectations at the beginning of the semester. We rate each expected behavior independently. We consider objective data to justify uh, the, the evaluations that we've made or the grades that we've given. We use full performance rating levels where we're actually saying this is what the highest level is. These are the performance standards that you have to meet in order to get an A. We have to separate ourselves from the from the supervisee or from the mentee, the student that we're supervising so that we can recognize that somebody can be different but still perform effectively and then when we work in big organizations and uh, university programs do this a lot with student clinicians we conduct in-house reliability training to make sure that everybody's grading on the same scale all right one other really important thing that i want to share that i think is critical to um, the success of your uh, how how successful your students going to feel about your experience especially from the beginning is to start off on the right foot and that's where you complete it administrative task prior to them getting there so that you're organized you've got the name badge ready you've gotten all their approvals the background check is in so you don't have to wait three days for her to start to work you know, you just have all of your part done this also uh, could be that you are giving uh, just at the beginning when they're coming in that you that you are uh, making sure that they have an orientation period with you that you're giving them the assessments that you use that you expect them to be able to use you're giving them an opportunity to learn those if you are working in early intervention let's say that that you use that you use a lot of my resources so that you might give her the 11 uh pre-linguistic skills checklist before she is there on that first day or you give her my chart of building verbal imitation so that she understands the things that you're working on with her or any little tool that you use all the time you make that available to her at the beginning of the semester so she's ready and she has an opportunity again with resources that you use and what your expectations are for uh, your time with her. So that, that might be something that you want to do. All right, so we want to finish up today by me sharing what I told you would be a really good tool for personal growth. And this is a 13-page document, so it's not included with your handout, but I've got a link uh, there uh, when you purchase CE credit, it's actually on the last page, the third page of your handout at the bottom. And so if you're listening to this and not watching here on YouTube, I'm holding up the handout. But uh, it's remember, this is show 449, and you can find out those details that teach me to talk. But this is Asha's um, tool, and this is self-assessment of competencies and supervision. And so it's 13 pages. <laughs> And so I didn't really want to 
uh, do line by line with this tool, but I wanted to make you aware of it because it's all the things that we've talked about today. And it's a rating scale so that you can rate yourself with uh, these supervision, um, these big areas. So one is the supervisory process and clinical education. And so again, you're rating yourself not yet as a zero. One is occasionally just starting. Two is frequently but sporadically. I'm getting there. And three is consistently. I've got it. And so you're rating yourself with these areas. I possess knowledge of collaborative models of supervision. And so those were the models of supervision that we reviewed. Remember we had three. We talked about Anderson and then we talked about the strategic questioning and feedback and then we talked about the cognitive. I've forgotten the title of that cognitive apprenticeship instructional model. So which one are you? You know, it's making sure that you put yourself in one of those models and you're trying one of those evidence-based practice, research-based models, and you're trying to adhere to that. I possess knowledge of adult learning styles. I possess knowledge of teaching techniques, reflective practice, those strategic questioning techniques that we talked about. Uh, I define the supervisor, supervisee roles and responsibilities appropriate to the setting. You know, when, when you're meeting with a, st a student at the beginning of the semester, how well do you set those expectations? I adhere to evidence-based practice. I convey that to my supervisee. I encourage them to seek out a, applicable research. So that was our first section. The next section is relationship development and communication skills. And so we talked about that supportive role that we play with our students and with our uh, CFs that we mentor. And so I develop a supportive and trusting relationship. I create an environment that fosters learning. I explore my own personal strengths. And then I explore the personal strengths and needs of the supervisee. I transfer decision making and social power to the supervisee as appropriate. So you let go of the reins throughout their time with you so that you see that they are having hands-on experience making decisions and and implementing strategies and seeing on their own if those strategies fail or if they're successful i educate the supervisee about the supervisory process you know i say to her we're going to meet every whatever or for a cf you say i've got to have six on-site observation experiences with you uh, during this three-month period. Let's go ahead and talk about what these dates are going to be and, and and how I'm going to do that. Is that going to be through, um, you know, is that a teletherapy kind of thing? Are we doing this virtually? Are we doing this in person? Or you're going to, you know, I'm, I'm not going to spring it on you that I'm just going to come be with you that day. I'm going to, you know, and you schedule your you're real concrete about your schedule and you schedule those observations up front. You define the expectations, goal setting, and requirements of the relationship. You demonstrate expectations for interpersonal um, communication. So we talked about that effective listening. We talked about feedback and how important that is. We talked about those generational gaps or the communication challenges that we might find ourselves in or even cultural. This talks about uh, I demonstrate evidence of cultural competence and appropriate responses to different communication styles. You know, is the student effective even if she's very different from me, if her style is different from me? I demonstrate recognition of and access to appropriate accommodations uh, for supervisors with disabilities. We did not talk about that because I think that's so inherent to what we all do, but we certainly want to make sure that we're making uh, those accommodations available when, when those are appropriate. I engage in difficult conversations and I demonstrate the use of technology for remote supervision if I have to do that. So that's re relationship development and communication skills. The next one is establishment and implementation of goals. 
So again, really specific indicators in that section, analysis and evaluation, how well are you doing that? Are you helping your supervisee conduct self-reflections until they're independent? That's what our Gibbs tool was about, learning how to self-reflect. The next one, clinical and performance decisions. And so you're helping your uh, supervisee respond to ethical dilemmas. You're providing regulatory guidance. So when they ask you a question, you say the rule is, or principle, the principle of ethics that we need to think about right here is, or our licensure rule is, so that you are giving that concrete guidance there. That you... Uh, help your students and your new clinicians learn how to access payment and reimbursement for services. So you're training them how to do documentation and billing. And so you're looking at those areas. The next one is specific additional competencies for clinical educators of graduate students. There's a specific role here. There's a section for audiology externs, probably doesn't apply to you. Uh, we have a different set of guidelines for uh, CF. Uh, mentors and how we relate to our CF uh, student or our CFs that we get, our clinical fellows. And so those uh, A through K there. Support personnel, how you do uh, regarding the people that you supervise that aren't SLPs. And then uh, even a gu set of guidance for those of us who are supervising individuals who are transitioning to a new area of practice or re-entering the profession. And so what are some things that you would do differently for supervising that person? Say, again, she's worked 10 years in a different setting. She's decided that uh, she's a mom now, maybe, and she's decided that she wants to do early intervention because she's having so much fun with her kids and she wants to have a more flexible schedule, blah, 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 blah. She's not going to work with adults anymore. You know, your supervision with her is going to be totally different than it would be, uh, again, with a grad student. So you're going to want to look at those differences there and adjust your supervision uh, strategy according to that. The, the last page there is a plan for continuing education, and I think this is great. For those of us who decide that we want to be uh, clinical educators and supervisors and we want that to be one of the main things, one of the main responsibilities that we uh, pursue in our profession, let me just direct you to ASHA again, to the practice portal page that's clinical education and supervision. There's so many resources that I didn't share today, but it certainly is a great compilation of everything that you need to do to be able to meet the minimum of what our national organization says that you need to do to supervise students and, and CFs and new clinicians in our area of practice. All right, so that is the end of this two-hour course. Congratulations. <laughs> you have met that two-hour requirement for uh, your ASHA uh, requirement, whether that's with your Cs to maintain your Cs or whether uh, you were in the situation where you're just Again, maybe you've supervised students for decades and now you know that you've you've never had to do this before and this is what you did to meet that requirement. So congratulations. If you are a pediatric speech language pathologist and this is the first course of mine that you have taken, I want to thank you personally for uh, choosing us at Teach Me to Talk. We want to be your continuing education provider for all your hours. <laughs> we have over 75 different courses right now as November 2022 in our library. They all have to do with early intervention. And for those of us who are in this really niche field, it is very frustrating to have to get 
lots of your hours in areas that you care nothing about. So that's one of the reasons that uh, we make that available to you. Our program uh, is really simple. We have a $5 CEU program, and most of our courses are $5 credit for one or one and a half hours of education, which I think is a wonderful deal. You can pick and choose as you go. All of our courses are offered free here on YouTube. So if you have parents who you think could benefit from this information, please refer them uh, here to our YouTube channel. We so appreciate that. And again, if you have not subscribed, I want to ask you if you would consider doing that for us today because uh, we so appreciate you supporting our work. All right, that's all for today. I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech-language pathologist. Let me say one more thing. You can get your credit for this course. You'll find the link here below on YouTube. And if you are listening to the podcast, please check us out at teachmetotalk.com. Our course number for this one is 449. And so you can get your two-hour credit for only 10 bucks uh, at Teach Me To Talk. All right, that is really it for today. <laughs> I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech-language pathologist, and thanks so much for joining me for Teach Me To Talk's podcast. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.